0: If you could uh, turn with me to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read the first ten verses, page 1161 of the Blue Church Bibles, page 1796 of the large print edition, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first ten verses. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from God. For we live by faith, not by sight, Now, we are all, I think, familiar with the parable of the rich fool or the rich man that Jesus tells in Luke in response to a situation where he's drawn into a kind of family dispute and being asked to arbitrate in an argument about an inheritance. And he tells the story of the rich man, and the rich man already had barns and property and land. And that particular year, he had a very, very good harvest, so big that his barns weren't large enough to store it all. So he thinks, oh, this is great. I'm going to build even bigger barns and all the harvest and all my possessions I can store in there. And then Jesus says, what a fool you are. Don't you know that tonight your life will be demanded from you. His sole purpose, Jesus says, was storing things up for himself. And it felt like a great situation. You got plenty of resources, you got a great harvest, so you could retire and just enjoy life. And that became his focus, that sense of security that he was okay because, well, the modern equivalent would be He had plenty of money in the bank. And Jesus says he was a fool, a fool for not being rich towards God, he puts it. Being rich in worldly resources. Yes, so much so that he had to build these huge barns. But what use is it if you're going to die? What is the focus of your life for the rich man? Well, it was the wrong kind of focus. Now, we all want to be comfortable and we want to make sure that we will be well off enough in the future. So we try to save, we try to have a good pension plan. The problem that Jesus was addressing in that parable isn't so much with prudent financial planning in itself, but with that being the main or the sole focus of the rich man's or the fool's life to the exclusion of God. Now, the New Testament makes very clear that our Christian life is radically different from what came before. There is a huge change there. It uses words like being born again, to emphasize that, like a new birth, like something completely new, starting. So when God saves us, it's a new start, it's a new beginning. It's not just a gradual course change where you add a few new principles or new convictions to your life, but basically it's a continuation of what went before. No, it's a radical departure, it's a radical new start. And Paul puts that in Philippians by saying our citizenship is now in heaven. So you might feel British or whatever your nationality is, but basically you're an alien in your own country. You're an alien in the world because as a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. You should have a completely different set of priorities. So we've become strangers on this earth and to this earth. But we do still live on this earth. We live in our frail bodies, our old bodies, despite this being born again. My body hasn't changed when I became a Christian. It just carries on. And we carry all the issues that come with that day-to-day that might be just minor aches and pains, or it might be dealing with major illnesses and suffering. Now, the earlier reading that Beth read to us from Romans talks about the whole of creation, not just us, but the whole of creation being subjected to frustration. The whole of creation was impacted by the fall, including us and our bodies, as well as ...nature out there, the whole world, it says in Romans, it's waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay... ...and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So this world and our bodies, part of it, are still in that bondage to decay that hasn't changed. There is a new birth, there is a radical new start... But there is also, in a sense, still a rooting physically in this world. And that includes us as believers. We are part of God's kingdom, and our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. But, again, in Romans, Paul says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So as long as we still live on this earth here, there is an incompleteness. Not in our salvation. The salvation is accomplished, that's very clear, once and for all by Jesus' death on the cross and by his resurrection. If we are Christians, then there is no doubt our sins have been forgiven. We have been born again. We have been saved. We have been redeemed This is all done and accomplished. But there is an incompleteness in the sense of not yet being in our final state, if you like. We're still in these earthly bodies, still in this life here on earth, with all the imperfections that carries with it. So there's that tension. And that's also what our passage for tonight is about. We started reading in the beginning of chapter 5. It says, For we know, or therefore, or now, depending on what translation you have. So that first word kind of indicates it follows on from what he has said before. So let me just read the last few verses from the chapter before. Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away Now if you're young and fit you might not yet feel that, give it time, it'll come. We are wasting away physically and that comes with those troubles that Paul talks about. He calls them light and momentary compared to the eternal glory that outweighs them. So he's not just talking about some trivial stuff which might be going on, but on the whole your life will be blessed and easy. No, those troubles that are light and momentary compared to eternal glory might be quite substantial. It's a comparison. And compared with that great future, they are light and momentary. They will pass but they might be quite substantial and to deal with that paul says well we need to decide what we're going to focus on what we're going to fix our eyes on on what is seen or what is unseen on god's things or on the things in the world So this passage here in chapter 5 is talking about that incompleteness. Yes, we have been completely saved, but we're not in heaven yet. We're not in the final, completed plan of God yet. The plan is still unfolding. And that's what he's writing about when he says, the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. Now, the earthly tent is our current body, our physical body. And that follows on from what he said, the last few verses in chapter 4 that we have just read. Our physical bodies, the earthly tent, is destroyed. And he says we know that, we should be aware of that. And as this is happening, we have a building from God, an eternal House in heaven. So he contrasts two things the tent, the earthly tent, and the heavenly body. Something fairly insubstantial like a tent that can just be blown away by the wind, compared to a house, a building created by God. And he says, You know that. But the kind of knowledge he is talking about is revelation, it is something we know. Because God tells us. John Calvin puts it like this. This knowing doesn't spring from the human intellect, but it takes its rise from the revelation of the Holy Spirit. So it's not knowledge we gain by reasoning, by thought, by contemplation, but it is something that's been told to us, is revealed to us by God. And therefore it's something we need to take seriously. So we know we're headed for an eternal home. But before looking at what that means, what that eternal home, building, house, what that is, we have glossed over one little word so far, and that's if. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. Why this if? Isn't that kind of a given? Yes, we're going to die, so then definitely that earthly tent will be destroyed, will be gone. Now, to be fair, it could be translated also as when that happens. But if you look at the rest of the passage... There is a reason why the NIV and many other translations chose the if, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. That's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about when it eventually happens, but there, for him, there is an if. It doesn't necessarily have to happen. So, under what conditions wouldn't it happen? Why is he saying if? It's if, because Christ might return at any point, if he returns before you physically die, then your body won't be subject to that decay. Your earthly tent will not be destroyed. And in Paul's day with the early Christians, there was a very strong uh, expectation of an imminent return of Christ. They expected him any day now. It wasn't going to take very long. He had lived with them. He had taught them. He had died not long after his death was his resurrection. Then he went to heaven. So this was all unfolding pretty quickly. So it wasn't unnatural then to expect that his second coming that he had told them about would come really soon as well. So they were expecting that imminently. So Paul says, well, if that happens before, then the decay of the earthly tent might not happen. So that's why he has used the if there. And that expectation they had also caused a lot of confusion and questions. What would that actually mean? You only have to read his letters to the Thessalonians to see that one of the main reasons he writes those letters is that the recipients in Thessalonica were confused. What would happen to the people who had already died, their Christian brothers and sisters who were dead now? When Jesus comes back, he can't take those with them, can he? Because they're dead in the grave. What's going to happen with them? If it's so imminent, if Christ is going to come back in the next couple of weeks, do I even need to bother working? I've got enough sort of foodstuffs in the fridge and the cupboard... I can last a couple of weeks, maybe I should just purely concentrate on praying and worshipping God. Those were not unreasonable questions, and that's the kind of stuff that Paul addresses in the letters to the Thessalonians. And he talks about it here as well. What does it mean Most of us today, we don't have that strong expectations. You don't expect Monday morning that Jesus is going to come back. I think, maybe I'm assuming too much, but I think we haven't got that strong expectation that Jesus' return is going to happen really, really soon. And maybe, just maybe that puts us at risk of sometimes losing our focus, of becoming a little bit like the rich fool in the parable that Jesus told. He isn't coming back anytime soon, not likely. So a lot of the practical stuff of my life becomes more important. Those savings, that pension plan or the progression of my career, they are pretty important things and they can draw more and more focus if Jesus isn't going to come back anytime soon. Our financial security might become more of a focus than our life with and for God. And then we're exactly like that rich fool that Jesus was talking about. Now back to the tent. The tent obviously by its very nature is a temporary shelter like the tents that the Israelites stayed in when they were traveling through the desert on the way to the promised land like the tent you maybe stay in for your holidays for a couple of days or weeks. But normally you don't expect to be in a tent forever. It's nice enough for your holiday, but then it's actually kind of comfortable to go back to your house with brick walls and a washing machine and a shower. The tent is okay for a bit, but you know it's temporary. It's not gonna be forever. And Paul is using that imagery to convey to his readers that their current physical bodies, the bodies that you and I have, are also temporary. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we therefore shouldn't take care of them. Yeah? If you've got a nice tent and you pack it away, you make sure it's dry or you air it first, you take care of your tent. We should take care of our physical bodies as well. Pull somewhere else on two occasions calls them a temple of the holy spirit so it's okay to be concerned about a healthy diet and to exercise <coughs> i think my kids were <coughs> sorry a little bit concerned about my exercise regime because they gave me a barbell and weights for my birthday so that i could exercise a little bit more a little bit more strenuously, and I'm I'm dutifully using them, so I'm lifting weights, and then the next day I feel it and I groan, just like Paul says, so it's all very biblical exercise that I'm doing, although maybe it's more external groaning in my case, maybe it's not what Paul meant, Mm -hmm. but it's okay to look after our bodies, but they are temporary, they're not going to last no matter how many hours you go to the gym or what kind of beauty regime you have, they're not going to last. That's the sad facts of it. So the earthly tent is our body. What about the building from God then? Some commentators take it to be that sort of what God has prepared for us in heaven, along the same lines as in John 14, when Jesus is talking about his Father's house. There are many rooms. That was a situation where the disciples were worried. It was sort of getting near the end of Jesus' time on earth. And he was talking about going away. He was talking about his death. And the disciples were wondering... What about us? If Jesus goes, where does that leave us? And in response to that concern, Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And the commentators think that maybe or some the house here, the eternal house in heaven, the building from God, has a similar kind of idea behind it. The problem with that is that Paul is contrasting the tent, referring to our earthly body, with a building in heaven. So if the tent refers to a body Why would the building refer to a building and not to a different type of body? So that's what other commentators go for, and I would tend to agree with them. In both cases, he is talking about a physical body. He contrasts the tent, the earthly body, with the heavenly body we will have, the tent versus the building. It's going to be a different quality, a building generally is a better place to stay in than a tent. They are both places to stay in. They both refer to physical bodies. So I think it makes much more sense to take the building from gold to also refer to a body, a resurrection bodies, the body we will have in eternity. And Paul talks about that in the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. He says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So there he compares two kinds of bodies. But they're still bodies, but they offer different quality. Natural body, spiritual body sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, perishable being clothed with the imperishable being transformed into the imperishable. So that's what we're waiting for. That's the incompleteness we've talked about before. Our bodies are not coincidental to God's creation. Like there's this... Intermediate period now where we live in bodies and then we'll sort of float away and be in heaven. No, bodies are, the physical is an integral part of what God has created and what God has planned. It's not something to be cast off, cast away, to become fully spiritual. And that's a significant point for Presumably quite a few of Paul's readers in the city of Corinth. Corinth in Greek, a Gentile church, a Greek church, lots of Greek philosophy going about. And one of the dominant philosophies of the day was that the body or the physical was seen as bad and the spiritual was good. And they were like polar opposites. One excluded the other. And that kind of teaching, since it was common in the day, was at risk of permeating the church as well. And I think you can probably see the problem there. If the body, the physical is bad and the spiritual is good, what about Jesus then? Spiritually the Son of God, how could he possibly inhabit a body if the physical is bad? So that was the Greek view. The body is bad. The body is like the prison of the soul, and you need to escape from it. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. We need to be very careful when we read Paul. You might think of, well, Paul talks about the flesh being bad an awful lot. So doesn't that mean that he agrees with that Greek philosophy then? The flesh is bad. But when he talks about flesh, you could almost substitute it with a phrase like fallen human nature. He's not talking about the physical body per se, but our fallen sinful nature that desires to do things that are dishonoring to God, wants to do sinful things. That side of our nature, not the physical, biological Organism, So the body in and of itself isn't bad at all. And that was important for the Corinthians to read. It's also important for us to realize that it's an integral part of God's creation. And we can look forward to having bodies without all the problems that we might currently have. And the fact that Paul talks about being clothed with our heavenly dwelling is an under indication that it's about bodies and not about houses and buildings. You don't clothe yourself with a building. Clothing is something to do with your body. So our bodies will be transformed, Paul is saying, not abandoned, but transformed. Augustine said, we are burdened with this corruptible body, but knowing that the cause of this burdensomeness is not the nature and substance of the body, but its corruption, we don't desire to be deprived of the body, but to be clothed with its immortality. These are things which maybe in our culture are a little bit alien, But it's important to realize that your body is part of God's creation and it's going to carry forward. It's going to be transformed, but not abandoned. And then he says another strange thing. This this whole passage, admittedly, is, is very difficult to understand. He talks about nakedness or being unclothed. That refers to the separation from the body when someone dies. So between death and resurrection, there is this this period where your body gets cremated or buried. You go to be with the Lord if you're a Christian. And you are without body. And we said the body was an integral part of God's creation. So it's an intermediate Situation, an intermediate state. For Jews, nakedness was abhorrent, it was a bad thing. And Paul uses that word here to express that this losing of our tent body and waiting for our eternal body isn't in itself great, it isn't in itself enjoyable. And the process of that tent getting in worse and worse state. And slowly going to bits isn't pleasant either. And we don't have to be overly spiritual when we're really ill and suffering. That is not nice. That is bad. And you can pray for comfort. You can use modern medicine. That's all perfectly fine. But Paul says, remember where it's going. It's only temporary and comparatively, light suffering, comparing it to the eternal glory, we said earlier. So, yes, on the one hand, death has lost its victory, but we groan and are burdened. Paul says we groan and are burdened, not just because of the suffering that might come with our earthly body and our earthly life, but also because the fact that death has lost its victory doesn't make it easy to go through. It's still a scary and intimidating prospect. And Paul freely acknowledges that here. But it's just that it's something we have to go through. If you go through a tunnel, you come out at the other end and you are a little bit closer to your destination. Well, if we go through this, we are at our destination. There is something at the other end, and that is to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. There's going to be a change, a progression. And Paul said, God has made us for this very purpose living in a glorified body in fellowship with him. That's what God wants. That's what he's created you for. And that's where he's going to lead you to. It's God's purpose. It's God's doing. And Paul says it's a future that's guaranteed by his spirit. The spirit being given as a deposit, he calls it. Now, a deposit, when you pay a deposit, that guarantees that you're going to get the thing you pay the deposit for. We don't pay deposits when we go shopping for a weekly shop and pay 20, 30, I don't know how much your weekly shop is, but for that amount, we don't pay a deposit. If you go and buy a house or a car, you might pay a deposit. You might not have the thousands of pounds to pay for that car on you, or you might need to arrange credits or shuffle money about before you can pay it with your card. But you can pay a deposit, you pay a few hundred pounds, and that guarantees that you're going to get the car. The salesman isn't going to sell it to the next person who wanders into the showroom, because you have paid a deposit, you're going to get it. And that's what God has done by giving us the Holy Spirit. If I may just reread a couple of the verses that Beth read to us earlier. So back to Romans 8 and I'll just reread 15 to 17 about the Holy Spirit, which in our passage in Corinthians, Paul called this deposit that guarantees what is going to happen. In Romans, the Spirit you received doesn't make you slaves so that you now live in fear again. the Spirit testifying to you, to your own spirit, that you are God's child. But also, once again, let's not gloss over the last bit, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Suffering, just like what Tim said this morning, is an integral part of this life that we're going through now. If you're not suffering, great! But don't be upset if you are. And it's not nice and it can be horrible. But it's something you're going through. It's not an end destination. So we are confident because of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing what is to come, the future that is there. And as long as we're in our earthly bodies, Paul says, we live by faith, not by sight. We're not in heaven yet. We don't yet see Jesus face to face. We are not yet at our destination. And death temporarily being away from our body, Paul says, is preferable. Because it is being at home with the Lord. That's where he will go when he dies. But there's also the reason why in the interim we are here. Why in the first place we are living in these temporary tents. Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. To live is Christ, to die is gain, because he would be with Christ. Dying guarantees that. He knows that that's what's going to happen. Even if it's temporarily without body, he will still be with Jesus. But staying on earth, he could continue his ministry. Planting churches, preaching the gospel, pastoring churches, writing letters to encourage and correct all these things could continue only if he continued his earthly life. So what shall he choose? Well, he doesn't know. One thing is great. The other thing is also important. What should he do? So where does that leave us? Well, like Paul, we don't really need to worry about it that much. The decision isn't up to us. It wasn't up to Paul. When he will die, it isn't up to us either. So in verse 9, we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. That's Paul's response. I want to please God in whichever way I can. And that will be different for each and every one of us. We're different people, different gifts, different abilities. But we can please God with what we have been given. That's our purpose. And then it gets a little bit more serious. Of course, he starts to talk about we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ in verse 10. So what is that about? I thought as a Christian, I'm okay and I'm going to escape that final judgment. That's not the kind of judgment he is talking about here. This is not a judgment to determine salvation or condemnation. He's very clear in Romans there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we've been saved, the price has been paid, we've been redeemed, that has been done, that has been settled And there is no going back on that. That is something that is very, very clear from the New Testament. And that's something that God guarantees as well. That's not what this is about. This is not about your salvation. It's a judgment instead to determine our integrity in living our lives. Again, in Romans, we're jumping to and fro a little bit here. Paul in chapter 12 says that we should live our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. In 1 Corinthians, he talks a little bit about this judgment in very practical terms. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's talking about. Ministry, your Christian life, what you do with it, it's all built on Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. The salvation is not the issue here. That's guaranteed. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as escaping through the flames. So the judgment will determine how we have built on that foundation, what we have done whilst we were in that tent, as we were traveling about in this body, what did we do with it? What did we do with our time and our resources? That is what is going to be judged. So in conclusion, we're obviously all at different stages of our lives. It might be that our tents, our bodies, are still in pretty good shape. Yeah, you might have a nice, modern, super lightweight tent really nice, sparkly colors. Or it might be that your tent is a little bit older, that there's some tears in this, that it's leaking at the seams. The tent really isn't that great anymore. It's pretty old and decrepit. And whilst we should always, said, take care of our bodies as temples. And it might be that a little seam sealer over the seams might stop the leaks for a while. We shouldn't lose sight though, of the temporary nature of this life and this body. The tent is a temporary structure. You could almost say, don't invest too much in it, because it isn't going to last. Don't be like the foolish rich man who thought he had it all covered with his huge harvest and the bigger barns and storage places he was going to build to store the harvest and store his possessions, he was a fool. He couldn't take it with him, and he was going to die soon. He wasn't giving any thought to God and what he could do with his life. And the reason we're living in these tents is twofold, so that we can be a witness to other people, building on this foundation that's been established in Christ, so that we can be a witness to the other folks on the campsite. That's the one. And the other one, to take some words from earlier in 2 Corinthians, to be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. It's not only sharing the gospel that we're here it's also this second bit, being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. God had an idea, he had a mental picture in mind when he created you. And that's been affected by sin in your life, it's been affected by the fall, all these things, and the image is marred. It's still there, but it's far, far from perfect. And that's another purpose while we are here. We try to draw closer to God. We allow him to work in our lives. And we pray and we read his words. And we go through suffering. And maybe the suffering sort of knocks off some of the rough edges. And polishes us a little bit. Changes us a little bit more into that image that God originally had in mind. So be a witness to the other people on the campsite and be transformed into the like, his likeness, Jesus' likeness, with ever-increasing glory. Be changed into what God wants you to be. And all this in preparation for being clothed with our heavenly dwelling, that new resurrection body. That is God's purpose. The one, verse 5, who has fashioned us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. God's purpose is you living in close fellowship with Him. That's the very purpose God has made you for. And He will get you there. It doesn't depend on your efforts. That would be a really scary thing. If me getting to the end of my life as a Christian, and not having lost my salvation, indeed depended on me, I don't know, I've got good days, I've got bad days. If that's what it depends upon, my salvation is on really shaky ground. My being a Christian, my eventually getting that resurrection body, might or might not happen. But it doesn't depend on me. God has made you for that purpose, and he will get you there. What this is basically saying is God wants you. He has chosen you and he's going to see you through. And the journey might not always be easy. You don't live in a mansion. You live in a little tent. That's what you're in now. But it's going to be a mansion later on with that new body living in close fellowship with God. All because of what Jesus has done for us. Shall we close by singing Because He Lives. Oops, sorry, I forgot a few bullet points. Maybe next time.